you have this moment or this event or maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, maybe it's a tragedy, maybe it's this exciting time, and then the next day rolls around, you're like, so now what? Kind of after that honeymoon stage, you get home and you had your wedding and you had this great tropical vacation, and then you get home and his underwear's on the floor next to the bed, and you know, she told you to pick up your underwear. I can't think of other illustrations this morning. And you're just like, so now what? Right? And, and honestly, I, I had that feeling when I, when I came to Christ. Um, I gave my life to Jesus my freshman year of college, fully surrendered to him. And I remember the day that I made that decision public. It was at a little church in Tilden, Nebraska. And I came forward at the end of the sermon. We had planned on it that day. And during the service, I literally left the sanctuary three different times to get sick. I have no idea to this day why I was so nervous, but I knew it was this momentous, life-changing day for me. And I came forward, and we went to the back, and my, my buddy from college baptized me into Christ. He dropped me in the baptistry. Water went everywhere, and then he drained the baptistry and flooded the church. Um, but So the church remembers it, too. And, uh, and I came out of that, and I do remember a, a physical emotional change. Like, I remember feeling different. Uh, I can't explain it other than the Holy Spirit dwelling in me and knowing that the life I used to live uh, was buried and there was a new life that I was going to live and I was committing to live for Jesus. But then Monday came and honestly, there was a huge part of me that went, so now what? So now, so now what do I do now that Jesus has saved me? What, what's next? And I want to be really, really clear this morning with something before we dive in to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 12 through, the end, through 18 this morning, and I want to be really clear ahead of time with something. So I want you to hear this clearly. There is nothing that you or I can do to earn our salvation. It, it is by grace alone. Jesus did all the work at the cross for you and for me. That's called justification, just as if I had died. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He justified us from our sin. Paul in Ephesians 2 says it is by grace that you and I have been saved, an undeserved gift that you and I have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's not my doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that none of us can boast and say that we saved ourselves. We are God's workmanship. We're created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's nothing that you and I could do to earn or work for our salvation. What you and I are going to talk about this morning and what Paul talks about in our text is a word we've been using a lot in this letter of the Philippians, sanctification. Sanctification is in light of our salvation, we are becoming more like Jesus, working towards Christ-likeness. We cannot work for our salvation, but Paul will tell us this morning that we can work out of our salvation to be more like Jesus. Bible commentator Steve Lawson says it this way. I thought this was one of the best things I'd ever read. I'd never heard it worded this way before, and I really really liked it. He says, in the Bible, that word salvation is represented in three different ways. There's past, present, and future. And he said these three designations in Scripture are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And what he says is he says that in justification, 
believers are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. When we give our life to Jesus, we are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. That's justification. Sanctification is when we are being saved progressively from the power and the practice of sin. That's right now. Now that I've given my life to Jesus, I'm learning to live like Jesus, powered by the Holy Spirit, in a way that makes sin's power and the practice of sin in my life go away. That's sanctification. In glorification, when Jesus returns or I go to be with him, you and I will be saved ultimately and eternally from the presence of sin. So there's a moment in our life when we give our life to Jesus that we are justified. We are saved from the penalty of sin then and forever because of what Jesus has done. You and I, what we're going to talk about today, are daily being sanctified from the power and presence of sin, the power and practice of sin in our lives. We're learning to live like Jesus, and there will be a day when Jesus returns or we go to be with him as followers of Christ that we will be glorified like Jesus and we will be saved forever from the presence of sin. Sin will exist no more. And the passage that you and I are going to walk through this morning, just verse by verse in Philippians 2, is probably one of the best most concise teachings on sanctification found in Scripture. But I want to be clear with one more thing before we dive in this morning. This teaching that Paul is giving us this morning is addressed exclusively to Christians. Paul is writing this section and this letter, and it is meant exclusively for followers of Jesus. Not a word of what we are talking about in this text this morning when we talk about sanctification applies to a person who does not believe in Jesus. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you're not a believer in Jesus yet, can I just tell you, we're glad you're here. And I think God has something in this teaching this morning that will encourage you, that may challenge you, and, and that will move in you. But I want to be really clear, what Paul is talking about this morning, he is addressing people who have decided and given their life to Jesus. You have to be justified by Christ before the Holy Spirit will dwell in you as a follower of Jesus and begin the work of making you more like Jesus. In other words, this morning, you can't live like Jesus if you haven't given your life to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and that's you, can I tell you one more thing from the church? We don't expect you to. We don't expect you to live like Jesus if you don't know him and if you've never given your life to him. And so Paul starts in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to go verse by verse this morning. In verse 12, he says, therefore, and, and the passage before that is what we learned last week with our youth, that when Jesus, all the things that he did by becoming a servant and leaving heaven, he says, because of that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so Paul tells the Philippian church, he says, because of what Jesus has done, because he left heaven, came to earth, died for your sins, because you have chosen to follow him, therefore, live out. Live out your Christ-likeness, even when I'm not around. Paul says, you should be living like Jesus when you're not around the church crowd. That's what he's saying. He goes, when I've been with you, and when we've been talking, and you've been listening to my preaching, you're living a Christ-like life. Now, make sure that you do that when you leave on Sunday morning. And Paul goes on, and in verse 13, this is what he says, For it is God 
who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul tells us the, the first thing that you and I need to know about sanctification this morning is it's God that does the work. It is God who motivates us and works in us to live more like Jesus. That word work is a Greek word called energeho. And it's the word that we get our word energy from. And the idea that Paul is talking about in this passage is this divine energy from God that provokes human work for God. Uh, the process is initiated by God, but our work is a response to the energy that you and I have from God given to us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, this word carried the meaning of, of working something to completion. Uh, the idea of, of taking a math problem and working it all the way out until you have a solution. Uh, in, in Paul's day, it was often used for people working in a mine. That they would dig down to the depths of a mine and bring out the ore of the miner. It was used in farming, this idea of working a field and tilling it up so that you could get the greatest harvest possible. And what Paul tells us is that living like Jesus, working out of our salvation to be more like Christ, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit in us who's mining out Christ-likeness in the depths of our soul. He's going to cultivate and churn up our life so that we can produce a harvest that looks like Jesus. Psalm 127, the writer said, unless God builds the house, then you're building in vain. Uh, unless the Lord watches over the city, then you're staying up and watching in vain. And, and what Paul reminds us in this passage is unless it's God doing the work, trying to live like Jesus is done in vain. It has to be God working in us. When you and I become followers of Jesus, when, when we're born again, as Scripture says, God takes our old heart out, one that was hardened and resistant to the things of God, and he gives us a new heart, a softened heart, led by the Holy Spirit that is open to the things and the teachings and the convictions of God and his word. The, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 talked about this when he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove that heart of stone that you had before from your flesh and I'll give you a softened heart, a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises as a follower of Christ that he'll do that work in us. And so can I ask this morning, church, are, are you and I putting ourselves in places where God can most easily work on us? I was reminded of that this week. This is not a story I want to share. Um, but this week, we bought a bus uh, for CSF. I didn't want to buy a bus. I don't like buses. Um, I don't ride on buses. I have this weird thing where I get sick on buses. So like for years, I was like coaching sports, and I would make somebody else ride the bus with the team, and I'd fall behind in my car because I throw up on buses. It's weird. It's quirky. I'm a delicate flower. Just let it go. All right? And so... Uh, <laughs> But, but I was thinking about that this week. So we bought this 25-passenger bus a year ago. COVID hit. We haven't been able to use it. And so CSF is getting ready to take a mission trip to Kentucky next week. So we took the bus in, had the oil changed, and I told the guy, I said, put it up on the lift and make sure everything's attached and working so we know it's roadworthy. That's the worst phrase I should have ever used in my life, put it up on the lift. 
Because when you put something up on the lift, you see all the things that are wrong with it. Can I just tell you, there's a lot of things wrong with that bus. If you're looking for a bus, uh, I have one for sale. And uh, <laughs> you're just not allowed to crawl underneath it. And, uh, but he found all these things. And, and the reality is, it it's really is a good thing. Um, because we shouldn't have been taking it out on the road because it wasn't what it looked like. There, there was internal rust that we couldn't see until they put it up on this lift and dug in there. There were hoses and things that were bad that we couldn't have told it until we put it up there. So we shouldn't have been taking it out on the road. And so my question for you and me this morning as a follower of Jesus is, are we putting ourselves up on the lift? Like, are we, are we putting ourselves in places where we allow God the time in our life to dig into the things that you just can't see until you get in that place? And, and so where do you do that? Like, like, where can you and I get on the lift and let God dig in? Well, this is one of them. Like, church is one of the places that you can come, and this should be a time that through God's word, through worship, through the Holy Spirit, through our time of communion, when you examine yourself, that God gets you on the lift, and hopefully the Holy Spirit is doing work in you. When we gather together in community, that's where God can do his work. And, and it's done in your quiet time. It's, it's, a, it's a daily thing where you sit with God and you listen and you dig into his word and you read scripture and you pray, and then, and then we shut up and we let God talk. And it's in, in accountability when we have people in our lives who know us better than we know ourselves, and we give them permission to dig into the things of our life and ask the hard questions through that, through mentors in your small group. All those things are places where God can get you on the lift and dig into your life to make you and me more like Jesus. Well, Paul goes on, and in verses 14 and 15, he says this. He says, do all things. I really do not like that word all, <laughs> without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And Paul tells us that as a follower of Jesus, we're called to stand out. We're told to be different than those who don't know Jesus. And I did some digging this week in my study, and again, I wished I wouldn't have because it became incredibly convicting. Uh, because I hear the word grumbling and complaining, uh, disputing, like I think of like you and me, right? Like complaining is when I come to you and tell you something I don't like. And I'm like, I honestly don't do that a ton other than at home, over there. And so, uh, but that word grumbling... Uh, in the Greek, the, the word actually means murmuring or muttering, and the idea is private complaining under your breath. I'm like, oh, right? Now I'm complaining, right? I've just sinned, I'm telling you not to sin, right? But that's what Paul says. He says it's not even, if you, if you get by because you don't complain to other people, Paul says, no, as a follower of Jesus, I shouldn't even be complaining to myself. And that second word, disputes, or, or some translations say complaining. And what it means is it's, it's a contentious spirit. What that word really means is an attitude or a tone when we talk about things. It, it, it identifies a person uh, who, who questions what is done, but does it in a way that is certainly not honoring to God. Like, we know what that is, right? Like, it's okay to question things, but when we do it in a tone or an attitude that makes other people feel terrible, that's not godly. And he says that's what that is. Paul says as a follower of Jesus, 
we're not supposed to do that because we're supposed to be different than the world. And, and see, the question this morning is not, will we be tempted to do that? Like, spoiler alert, you will. Some of you are tempted right now, right? This sermon is terrible, right? That's what you're thinking. But that's the thing. We, you know, see, the hard part for me is I think we live in a culture now where I would suggest that complaining and grumbling is actually the common language, right? I mean, we live in a world and a culture now in this country and in our time where complaining has become the common language. It's, it's what we do. So the question is not, what, will, you, what will, we, will we be tempted? That's not the question. The question is, as followers of Jesus, what will we do when we're tempted to go along and speak like the culture? When we're tempted to complain about everything and grumble about what we don't like. Because Jesus said as a follower of him, we're not supposed to do that. Paul says that's not what a follower of Jesus looks like. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, likened it to this. He said, imagine, he likened complaining to this idea. He said, imagine a man who inherited for nothing. He inherited this million-dollar estate, this, this gorgeous estate with land and houses and buildings, and he got it all for free. But he lived across the country, and this estate was in New York, and so he hopped in his carriage, and his carriage carried him all the way across the country. No trouble with it. No sickness, he made it all the way within a mile of his destination. And with one mile to go, his carriage breaks down. And so he has to get out and he has to walk the last mile to this amazing estate that someone has gifted to him. He said, now imagine if you were walking with this person, what would you think if he started to complain? He said, I can't believe the carriage didn't make it all the way. I can't believe i got to walk the last mile to this estate. I can't believe how bad this is. I can't believe my life. I can't believe how terrible this is. He says, as an outside person, part of us would go, well, hey, the carriage made it like the whole way but the last mile. And no offense, you're getting a free estate that's worth a million dollars. Like, the last mile is probably not a big deal, right? Well, well Newton says that you and I have to remember as followers of Jesus, that we only have about one mile to go. That, that this life is really the last mile. And he says, soon we're going to see Jesus in a way we've never seen him before. Soon we're going to be with Jesus and we're going to receive an inheritance that we do not deserve and that we did nothing for. So if we have to walk a hard mile before we get there, he says we probably should be doing that with a song and not with a complaint. See, see, you and I have to realize as followers of Jesus that the world is watching. That, that's what Paul's telling us. The world is watching. And, and to be honest, the world is looking for holes to poke in Christianity. And the first place they're looking is in the lives of followers of Jesus. So when our conversations when our social media, when our interactions with other people are filled with complaining and negativity and hopelessness and slanderous talk, you and I lose our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus. We don't look any different than the rest of the world who does not know him. And I think you and I this morning have to remember the incredible opportunity we get. We get to make an eternal difference in somebody's life. 
And, and sometimes the best way to do that is just to simply speak and live differently than people who don't know Jesus. That's all we have to do sometimes, is to live and speak differently than the rest of the culture. And a watching world will go, what, what, why? Why do you do that? And we can literally change someone's eternal destination. Jesus said in Matthew 5, that's why we're a light to the world. You can't hide us on a hill. You don't put us under a basket. He says you put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way as a follower of Jesus, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to the God, the Father in heaven. So let me ask you a tough question this morning, Journey. Let me, let me ask you to wrestle with a question that I'm wrestling with. What does the world who does not know Jesus see when they look at the church who does? Let me say that one more time this morning. What does the watching world who does not know Jesus see when they look at the church who does? If someone followed you and me as a follower of Jesus around for a week, and they followed someone else who doesn't know Jesus around for the same week, would they be able to pick out which one knows Jesus and which one doesn't? Would they, would they be able to tell the real deal? It kind of reminded me, this has been years and years ago, uh, my wife tried to sneak in some caffeine-free Diet Mountain Dew into our house. <laughs> like, come on. What kind of freak drinks caffeine-free Mountain Dew? <laughs> right? And she claimed that, uh, you can't tell the difference anyway, just drink it. And I said, no, I can taste the caffeine. And so she put one in a glass and another, a regular one, the nectar of the gods, in the other one. And I drank it, and I go, that one's got caffeine and that one doesn't. And she just shook her head and walked away. And uh, because I could, I could taste it. I'm just telling you, all right, you can taste the caffeine, okay? One is a drink of the devil, and the other one is what we drink. It flows in the rivers of heaven, Okay. <laughs> And I could tell, like I could taste it. There is a distinctiveness in the other. The Bible tells us that as followers of Jesus, that people should see us and taste the goodness of the Lord. They should smell it on you. The Bible says that we're the aroma of God. People should be able to look at your life and mine and go, yeah, that's the real deal. And they look at other people and go, yeah, that's Jesus free, right? There's no Jesus in that. There's something different. I can tell. And Paul says that's part of living for Jesus. We're called to be the real deal. And Paul finishes this section of Scripture. In verse 16, he says, You do this by holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will be proud that I did not run or labor in vain, even if I myself am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul sums this up this morning for the, in this way. He says, living like Jesus, this is what it is. He says, hold fast to the word of God. Let, let the word of God be your guide and your compass. Finish this life strong and leave a legacy that lives on after you're gone that points people to Jesus even after you've went to be with Jesus. Hold fast to the word of God, finish strong, leave a legacy. 
And I think what Paul's reminding us this morning, church, is that it's really easy to have all that excitement, all that, all that movement, and all that thing at an event, or in a moment on Sunday morning, or at a camp, or on one of those things where we're not around the world. It's really easy to have all that excitement and go, here we go! But it's a whole other ballgame when Monday comes. And we have to live faithfully and consistently like Jesus when the church isn't watching. Paul said in Corinthians 10 that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. 1 John chapter 2 says this is how we, knew, how we know that we have come to know Jesus. Don't miss this. A few weeks ago, we talked about how the way the world knows that we follow Jesus is by how we love each other. That's what Jesus said. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the, a sign that we've walked out of the grave into life is the way we work together. John says that. But John goes on, and he says this in chapter 2. He says, this is how we know. This is how I know that I have come to know Jesus. This is how I know that Jesus is doing a transforming work in my life if I keep his commandments. John says, whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And he says, the truth isn't in you. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. What a great promise. That when you and I obey Jesus, when we live like Jesus, God's love is perfected in us. He says, this we may know that we are, this is how we know we're in Jesus. That whoever says he abides in Jesus will walk in the same way in which Jesus walks. We'll love like Jesus, we'll live like Jesus, we'll speak like Jesus, and that will lead people to Jesus. That will leave a legacy that lives on after you're gone. That's why we live for Jesus. Not so people can look at us and go, boy, I like that, he's, he's a good-looking guy, he looks just like Jesus. In fact, when you live like Jesus, there will be a lot of people who ridicule, mock, and scorn you. No, we live like Jesus so that other people will live for Jesus long after we're gone. There's a picture on the screen as the band comes up to lead us in our closing song, or our, our commitment song this morning. As the band comes up, there's this picture. Some of you know uh, this girl on your right. That took me a minute. Um, that's Tristan Sell. Some of you know her. She was a college student here uh, when I was the campus minister in Wayne. She's one of our favorites. And Tristan was a student leader. And I had the honor, Tristan's sophomore year, to baptize her into Christ. And Tristan sent me this picture a couple weeks ago. And Tristan is here on the right. I don't know the two people in the back. They're the parents of the young child next to Tristan. And this girl is in Tristan's youth group. Tristan is teaching uh, out at a high school in Grand Island. And then she's helping at this killer junior high ministry at the church that she attends. She's a small group leader. And this girl is in Tristan's small group in this junior high ministry. And Tristan has just finished baptizing her into Christ. And Tristan sent me this picture and just had a one-line caption on it on my phone. It just said, congratulations, you're a grandpa. <laughs> Can I tell you, church, that's the best thing anybody's ever said to me. That's the best thing. That by the grace of God and by the transforming power of Jesus, and that alone, God used me to impact somebody's life and then God used them to impact somebody else's. All because Jesus does a transforming work in us when we let him. 
Well, church, can I just tell you, I want more grandchildren. I want more grandchildren in my life. I want more grandchildren for you. And I want more grandchildren for our church. And it starts by giving your life to Jesus. And then daily deciding to live for Jesus by his power and by his leading. And as we get ready to sing this morning, church, I would just ask you to join me in committing to do that. To let Jesus do a transforming work in your life and mine so that others might know who he is. And I believe what Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul says, I'm sure of this, and I am too, that Jesus, who began a good work in us here, he's going to bring it to completion on the day that he returns. And so this morning, I just invite you, I invite us together to surrender to Jesus, to let him work in us to be more like Jesus, so that we can bring others to Jesus. Let's do that. Let's commit to that. And let's worship Jesus as we stand and sing.